more than 100 people, 120 people have died and hundreds more are still missing after the worst flooding in parts of Western Europe for several decades. Now to Australia, where Queensland and New South Wales have been facing catastrophic fire danger, the highest level possible. At least 71 bushfires are burning across New South Wales. The smoke is so intense and so thick it can be seen from space and has drifted across to New Zealand. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to explore the role of data and its analysis when it comes to protecting people, infrastructure and homes from climate-related events. Because the number of climate-related events is increasing. And so is the catastrophic damage they cause. Over the past 20 years, the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, working with the Centre of Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, estimates that 1.23 million people have been killed by more than 7,348 disasters. They estimate the economic damage at just under $3 trillion. We will link to the Human Cost of Disasters report in the show notes. The report compares the damage from the past 20 years to that of the 1980s and 1990s, and it finds that there's been a massive increase. Back then, there were 4,212 events, causing 1.19 million deaths and $1.6 trillion in damage. In response, countries around the world are seeking to reduce their carbon emissions and achieve a lower trajectory for global warming in a bid to lessen the extreme impacts. But there is clearly a pressing need to improve our preparedness for major events. We need to become more resilient. I, I love this term resilience. You know, It's like the term reliability, which mechanical engineers used to use until we figured out a mathematical way to represent reliability. Resilience needs to be better understood as an output. Uh, I, I don't think we are there yet. This is something that Masjud Jaffrey has thought a lot about. The word is even in his job title. I'm Masjud Jaffrey. I'm Resiliency Market Director for our US region. One of the challenges at the moment is that it doesn't have a clear value. Masjud says that we need to find a way to measure it so we can manage it. Resilience may appear differently to different types of people. Take grid, for example, electrical grid. Resilience to a grid would mean that you continue supply of power. So building redundancy in your power networks will be seen as one way of, of thinking resiliency, right? Power networks are easy to, to, to think about because everybody needs one and we all know what happens when the power goes out. So having rooftop kind of solar panels would be a form of thinking resiliency, that should you lose your supply, you have your own little microgrid sitting at, at, your, at your home uh, that can generate power. Thinking about alternate power supplies and sources or fuels, like hydrogen, for example. This could support transportation systems to be resilient. Redundancy is one way of thinking about resiliency. The other is uh, the ability to cope up with the, the impact post-event, right? So planning for it is, is one. And that's another resiliency is how quickly can you get back on your feet after you get knocked down by an event? And that's another way of thinking resiliency. Having redundancy in your 
and your transportation corridors uh, as a way of thinking resiliency in infrastructure. So, so several ways, depending on what kind of engineer you are, you can think about a way of making your solution not only work, but last. That's more important. It has to last and has to survive an extreme event. This means thinking about three key areas. Three things I think that uh, that come into play. You know, first you got to anticipate, right? You got to anticipate what's going to happen, and if you do that with scientific means and methods, it's better because you have a better accuracy in predicting what's what's coming to to effect and how. For example, data on water levels from the European Flood Awareness System or information on hazardous tropical weather from the National Hurricane Center in the U.S. The step number one, anticipation of what is changing, how it's changing and how it's going to impact the world around you or around the communities that you live with. The second natural thing is, is to prepare for. Just put yourself in, in a situation that you're living in a city and you're going to be told, a city like Houston where I live, that there is a hurricane brewing up in the Gulf. What would you do? What would you do based on the risks that this event presents? And third is responding to it. Because once it hits and you prepare for the best you can, but still, there will be some residual risk that you're not able to manage, and, and therefore you got to uh, you got to respond to. So, in 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 my opinion, the cycle of that climate impact or event is no different for an individual, or for a city, or for a state, or for a federal government, because you still have to put yourself into those three mindsets, regardless. And if we don't get this right, let's take. Hurricanes, which are very common in the region I live in. Number one, your utilities will be disrupted pretty significantly with very high impact winds and high impact rain. You're going to have both, you know, electrical issues. You're going to have, you know, power issues. You're going to have water issues. Sewer systems are overwhelmed as water has nowhere to go, but it keeps coming. With more winds and stronger winds, you're likely to lose the roof on the top of your house as well or some windows depending on if the debris is flying in you uh, in your direct so not only are you going to lose your basic necessities which we all know what they are now your house is gone or affected you can't no longer live there or, or you need a makeshift place your utilities are not there so even if you have bought a lot of food you can't cook it or, or at least you have to live on canned food uh, for a while your transportation systems will be affected because once you get flooded, you're not going to get much transportation going in that area anyway. So either you need a rescue plan, someone have to come and take you out, or you have to make your way out before the storm hits. So you may be out, out of your home for days, weeks, months, depending on how badly you're affected. And this then has a knock-on effect on public health. You may be running out of water or clean water, put it that way, um, and that could create diseases, may lead to more presence of, you know, aquatic invertebrates like mosquitoes and things like that, you know, that causes further healthcare issues. So it would end up creating more stress on your healthcare system. Which in turn affects civil society. Usually after such major events, you get some sort of a civil unrest. 
whether temporarily or for a prolonged period, it's just because people are desperate. They're out of, they're in a situation that they need help. And sometimes getting that help to them is not as quick. Uh, you can go back to lack of preparedness or you can just say the sheer scale of it was not anticipated. So uh, those challenges will, will kick in. So how can engineers help cities and communities to anticipate, prepare and respond in a way that prevents or limits all of the impacts that Masjoud has just described? Decisions, you know, are a complex thing. You know, you make decisions on things that you're aware of. The quality of a decision will depend on the quality of information you have or possess about the things you're going to decide upon. So it's very, very important that we surround ourselves with the right type of information and, and data modeling and current machine learning and forecasting and artificial intelligence and tools like City Simulator. They play a, a great role in that decision making. It's very, very important. City Simulator is a new tool developed specifically to analyze and predict the impact of climate change on cities. But what is critical about this is that it enables cities to understand the real and present danger of climate change on assets that were designed and constructed decades ago, when the risks were less. Let's take for example, how much capital do you need to plan for, right? It's a question, it's a decision that somebody has to make. But what would that be based on? Are you going to look back? and look at historic numbers. That's one way of looking at it and deciding you know, how much money should be allocated. But what we're seeing is the weather events are being altered. There, in fact, are new events that have never happened before. So while historic data is great, it's not gonna be all sufficient to make that decision. So now you have to look for better data models, long-term forecast, and models and simulations that can actually help you prepare for those decisions. Developing those models is Stephen Bourne's job. I am Stephen Bourne. I am a project director at Atkins with a focus on resilience. I am lead architect of City Simulator, which is a software tool for understanding how climate change will impact cities in the future. Stephen has been building decision support tools since graduating school. I get decision support tools. I've been building them ever since. I think the um, the one I'm building now is probably the biggest I've ever done, uh, and it's called uh, City Simulator. I mean, it's focused on uh, resilience for communities. And this tool, what it does is it'll, it'll create what we call a digital twin of a community, of a city, and then simulate it evolving into the future with climate change. It's, it's highly detailed, so we're, we're simulating what we call agents. It's an agent-based tool. And what that means is, you know, if you have a million people in your city, then it has a million avatars in the model moving around and doing things like going to work and um, shopping and recreation and all that. And so it's able to quantify how often those people will be disrupted by climate change in the future. So we get down to you know, very, very fine detail. Detail that has helped Boulder County in Colorado develop more climate change resilience after devastating floods in 2013. Not only that, it helped them secure federal funding for infrastructure projects. In 2013, they had a flood. Um, and if you looked at the rainfall, sort of, you know, daily rainfall totals for Boulder since 19, 1890 or something like that, they had a very long record. The highest rainfall that was ever received up to that storm was five and a half inches. Around 140 millimetres for metric listeners. And that storm was 9.8 inches of rainfall. 250 millimetres. 
So like almost double what they had ever seen before. And it, you know, wreaked havoc across the, uh, the county. Um, the west side of the county is really mountainous and really beautiful, uh, but dangerous. And people who live there uh, up in the mountains are typically, they only have one road, you know, kind of out of the mountains. And many of those roads were just destroyed. So they had helicopters lifting people out and, you know, it, it, it had just wreaked real havoc across the whole community. So that prompted them to do a lot of resiliency thinking. And one thing that they did was hired us to do a city simulator simulation. A digital twin of the city, modeling the 111,000 buildings, the infrastructure and the activities of 325,000 people. We tried as hard as we could to emulate exactly how they manage Boulder. Um, they're very focused on not allowing a lot of development, for example. And so we had to you know, have that within the, the model itself. So it didn't allow new development to happen and urban spread and stuff like that. This was in 2017, and they modelled the city up to 2050. They wanted a top 10 list of the future disruptors, transportation disruptors, in terms of when floods come in the future, which of our bridges and culverts will cause the most trouble? And so we made them a top 10 list map. They then took that uh, to FEMA. The US Federal Emergency Management Agency. And said, FEMA, we've done this study. This is what we understand. These three bridges on the top of our top 10 list are gonna cause hundreds of thousands of disrupted trips in the future. Uh, we would like funding to redesign and rebuild those bridges. And they were successful in that. The results of this kind of modelling can be revelatory in that most infrastructure was designed decades previously based on historic data that are no longer representative of extreme scenarios. A 1 in 100 probability event, so a flood that has only a 1% chance of happening in any single year, is now a 1 in 50 or 1 in 20 year event because of the increasing severity of weather patterns. But in many cases, this is what infrastructure design regulations have required. In fact, the Human Cost of Disasters report we referred to earlier listed flooding events as being the most increased type of disaster in the past two decades, with 3,254 events compared to 1,239 events in the 1980s and 1990s. The good news is that entities all over the world are producing fantastic data from river level monitoring and forecasting to climate change projections, looking at global temperatures, weather patterns and other critical aspects. New data exists to enable a more accurate understanding of these increasingly severe scenarios and City Simulator uses gigabytes of it. We don't have to like reinvent the wheel and uh, we can really cut down the costs of doing these studies by sort of standing on the shoulders of other modeling efforts that have happened already. So there's, there's a ton of models uh, that go into building this simulator so that when a, when a climate event occurs, we get an accurate picture of what happens to the city. And then see how the city will react and most importantly, enable the city authorities to prepare and plan for the future. With our level of quantification, you can say this bridge will cause the most trouble because it, it disrupts 100,000 trips per year over the next 30 years. Whereas this one over here, it disrupts 80,000. And so they'll literally say, all right, well, let's, let's work on the 100,000 trip bridge first 
and then work on the, the, the 80,000, you know? So it's a fairly straightforward process. What's really interesting is the way that this can be interrogated to develop a range of solutions. There are lots of actions they can take on the menu, and maybe a combination of actions will uh, collectively avoid a problem. Instead of just focusing on the bridge, maybe you just change the policies so that that, that bridge becomes less used in the future. With Boulder, for example, we, we tried all those kinds of things, um, you know, incentivizing people to do flood protection on their own homes, spending the money on uh, elevating roads, you know, all these things. And it turned out in the end that those three bridges gave more resilience than anything else. That was the convincing part for FEMA, you know, among other things. It's that you, you sort of you shook the trees, you checked every option, and, you know, you found that fixing these three bridges is actually the best approach to take. Policy change enabled by investment in new communications technology was actually a valuable solution that emerged from City Simulator's pilot project. It was a resort town called Las Terrenas. And the town had literally been built in the floodplain. And so they were seeing flooding three, every three weeks, that kind of thing. And as, as uh, climate change, that was threatening to become every once a week kind of thing, uh, and much more damaging. We said, well, what if you vastly improve the telecommunications in the town? Uh, that would, you know, shift people who can work at home to working at home, and maybe they just wouldn't be traveling in the central business district anymore and getting flooded. So sort of revealed indirect solutions other indirect solutions might be found in harnessing the power of nature. If you use the power of nature, it's a really good strategy to strengthen climate resilience. Dr Kate Vincent is an Associate Director in the Ecology Practice within Infrastructure in Atkins. Nature-based solutions can also be described as green infrastructure. Surface water flooding is an issue in the UK, and particularly in a lot of our cities. Prevention of that flooding through designing in green infrastructure helps with resilience much better than dealing with the aftermath of extreme weather events. So, for example, if we can reduce flooding through incorporating green infrastructure um, into the city to begin with, then that can help de-risk the most damaging effects of climate change. This could involve a plethora of engineered natural solutions. So there's so many different types of interventions that you could do in, in, an, in an urban environment. You know, you've got, you can put in green roofs, green walls, um, street trees, um, su sustainable urban drainage. Um, and having lots of different interventions ensures that there's that connectivity across a city. And, and so having some uh, threads of green through a city is extremely important. It also is really good to increase the use of people cycling and walking. So if, if you have green areas that people can access and get across the city, you also can reduce cars in cities. So it's not just um, because it looks nice, there's other benefits as well. So it's just, it's thinking about what's there to begin with and how you can maximise it. And that's why data is extremely important because if you know what's there to begin with, you can use the information that's around you to then try and maximise 
and nature for the best benefit. Benefits that the City of Edinburgh in Scotland is gaining. So we've done some work um, for Edinburgh City Council. We were working with them to come up with a green-blue network across the city. Data was really key in how we maximised the green-blue network. And what I mean by that is that we use spatial data um, to look for opportunities for all those different benefits. So we, we looked at water, we looked at things like carbon, we looked at air quality and noise. And, and in particular biodiversity. And we wanted to obviously maximise all those elements. That meant using a range of traditional and new data sets. We used the usual habitat data sets that are available, but we also looked at soil carbon values, we looked at air quality and noise data. And we also even considered how people use the city and its surroundings using Strava data. So we looked at how the city is being used and, and where people are going to walk and cycle and, 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 and run. So we, can, we tried to tie that into those green spaces. This enabled the city to both restore green and blue areas, but also create new ones, making this green city even greener. We're reducing flood risk, we're reducing temperature increases through shading, we're um, sequestering carbon. We're doing all these really good things for the environment and also making it a nicer place to live. But to incorporate these solutions, there needs to be more collaboration and awareness of their potential benefits. Designing with nature and biodiversity in mind, you need to include it at earlier stages in any strategic thinking or project planning. And early engagement with the environmental team on a project is essential to ensure successful delivery. So, for example, if you work with the environmental team at the start of the delivery process, it increases the likelihood for green infrastructure or nature-based solutions to be integrated in the design um, considerably. So you're, you're developing those environmental positive outcomes from the outset. Let's not forget that nature also suffers when extreme climate events rampage through communities. Extreme weather events have a huge impact on biodiversity. So, for example, you've got increased temperature, so you get wildfires. So that has that we've seen that across the globe in the last year, eighteen months, where you've got wildfires and they take out huge areas of, of forest, and that takes a long time to get back to where it used to be. And obviously, that burning of those that forest uh, releases carbon into the atmosphere. And obviously you get habitat loss and the impacts on species. So for example, certain species, particularly so UK is an example, certain species are not able to survive these the warmer summers. Um, and so therefore you, you're starting to see a species decline in some areas. So natural disasters have an extreme impact, but then you've got ongoing climate change causing an underlying problem as well. So it has a double effect. By adding biodiversity into modelling, it allows for the effects of green infrastructure to be integrated, developing environmentally positive outcomes while understanding the long-term resilience they will add. This also means understanding how green infrastructure interacts with traditional and much-needed engineering solutions, sometimes referred to as grey infrastructure. What we need to see is that, that interconnectedness between green and grey. Often you get the best output 
by working with engineers and making sure that the best design fits that particular problem and it's a it's about making sure you understand what's the local context because obviously we need we need infrastructure in cities and it's making sure that we're smarter with our design to make sure that it will benefit both nature but also people as well which is extremely important Mastud agrees that greater collaboration is needed as part of the bigger need for behavioural change at a range of levels. To be able to make our engineering better, we have to incorporate environmental sciences as part of our engineering practice. That junction has to be interlocked. Over the past decades, I think those two mindsets have operated separately. I know we engage scientific data and scientists and, and, and people with environmental science background more as an afterthought sometimes, you know, and, and, and more for assessments and, and understanding the risk and the issue. I guess they go to be part of the solution building as well. So building that, you know, bridge between environmental sciences and engineering application is key. But just as important is being able to harness the power of new technology to really understand risk and response. Leveraging the, the power of technology, the power of digital in, in making things happen faster and, and, and doing it more efficiently because what you would be hearing a lot about is rapid deployment of solutions, right? This is an accelerated solution making mode. You won't say people saying, yeah, well, we've got a lot of time. Well, in fact, nobody's saying that. It's exactly the opposite. Without understanding the long-term responses using modern data analytics, there's a danger that solutions will be implemented that aren't sustainable. It makes people provide solutions that may not have been well thought through and technologies that may not be very good in the next four or five years. And we may be dealing with a lot of obsolete tech or obsolete solution that appeared great at the beginning of you know, the era, and within about five, 10 years had already become a, a nuisance, a kind of a problem for uh, for the infrastructure. So we as engineers, when we are specifying, developing, designing things, we've got to think about procurement strategies, we've got to think about equipment and technologies that we are procuring, the type of fleets and buses and, and trains that we'll be running later, and, and how that get picked, how that technology gets selected. There has to be a lot of emphasis on resilience. It is not just a matter of picking the most in a jazzy looking train out there, uh, which of course you can, but think about will it last for the purpose it is built for and will it be resilient and what the manufacturers and the vendors are doing in that in that regard. So putting that expectation in your contracts and your procurement strategies that the technology has to make up for the, that gap, right? And we also want to stop uh, technologies entering that system which are not so well thought through and could actually be a part of the problem or solution. So it, it's, it has to be, be working both ways. It has to be a solution forward, but also have to provide a deterrence to technologies that are not so well thought through and can actually be just an added uh, disadvantage uh, further down the line. At the same time, as Majood says, we cannot ignore the importance of behavioural change when it comes to being resilient to climate change. Before climate change, it's behavioural change. You don't change your behaviour, you don't change your climate. It's all about human activity and industrial activity that leads to the problem we are facing, right? 
So if you all become conscious and mindful individuals and look around our own surroundings and think do things the right way, of course you're not perfect, but we'll do our best, it will make a tangible difference. And it will, you know. Just look at the way you operate your homes and houses and, and how much utilities you're consuming. Uh, it has, well, it, it helps you as well. It, it, it lowers your bills in that regard. And having that conscious existence will change a lot uh, for the world. And, and that applies to your role as well, not just as a human. Uh, we all perform roles in, in, in that regard. If you're an engineer, then apply that same thinking and that same behavioral approach towards your engineering practices if you're you know a scientist and take the same so my one word of advice is behavioral change is really what it takes changing behavior is difficult but it is easier if the impacts of not changing behavior are clearly understood and communicated Stephen, who has spent his life creating the kinds of tools that make the unknown known says that answers are available the perception that you can't know what climate change is going to do to you individually as a community or as a business runner or whoever um, has a concern about it, that's still alive, you know? People are still sort of struggling to find answers. I, I guess if I wanted to close out this discussion, it, it would be that answers are available and there, there are teams of people working on, on getting those answers. There are solutions out there. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was hosted by Alex Conaher and Rian Owen. Research by Jane Sophia. Edited by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own great infrastructure is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Atkins. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world.